Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, guys. In order to keep the show ad-free and increase the frequency of production, donations are a big help. Some of you have been very generous in donating, and I appreciate it greatly. If you could give to the show's Patreon account, it would result in good karma and buttress the show's prospects. The URL is www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash leader one, L-E-A-D-E-R-O-N-E, www.patreon.com slash leader one. Thank you so much. object if Adolf Hitler's photograph were inserted by the editor of a dictionary next to the definitions of evil and monster. Six million Jews were killed throughout the Holocaust, as were other people who were deemed to be inferior and racially impure. An estimated 50 million people lost their lives throughout the course of World War II, The world was never the same after 1945, the conclusive year of the war. December 9th, 1946. World War II has ended and the perpetrators of the Third Reich and the Holocaust have facilitated and implemented are about to stand trial and face prosecution for crimes of mass extinction. Science and research in Nazi Germany were informed by Aryan racial theories. The prescription for what they deemed as impurities within the race, such as the presence of people with disabilities, both mental and physical, homosexuals, and other non-conforming minorities, and, most notably, Jews, was ethnic cleansing, as ordered by de Führer of Germany, Adolf Hitler. Brigadier General Telford Taylor, Chief of Counsel for War Crimes, 
addressed the court with this opening statement at the Nuremberg trials. The defendants in this case are charged with murders, tortures, and other atrocities committed in the name of medical science. The victims of these crimes are numbered in the hundreds of thousands. These nameless doomed were ordered in wholesale lots, like cattle, of 200 Jews in good physical condition, 50 gypsies, 500 tubercular poles, or 1,000 Russians. The mere punishment of the defendants, can never redress the terrible injuries which the Nazis visited on these unfortunate peoples. For them it is far more important that these incredible events be established by clear and public proof, so that no one can ever doubt that they were fact and not fable, and that this court, as the voice of humanity, stamped these acts, and the ideas which engendered them, as barbarous and criminal. Among the many atrocities that befell the Jews and other minority populations in Germany were the Nazi policies for the general population and its genetic racial status. In 1935, the Nazi Director for Public Health for the Ministry of the Interior, Dr. Arthur Gett, made the following statement in a book he wrote entitled The Structure of Public Health in the Third Reich. The ill-conceived love of thy neighbor has to disappear, especially in relation to inferior or asocial creatures. It is the supreme duty of a national state to grant life and livelihood only to the healthy and hereditarily sound portion of the people in order to secure the maintenance of a hereditarily sound and racially pure folk for all eternity. The life of an individual has meaning only in the light of that ultimate aim, that is, in the light of his meaning to his family and to his national state. September 1, 1939 Hitler conferred the responsibility of implementing a euthanasia program. The purpose was to provide a so-called mercy death to peoples he considered to be incurable, that is, racially impure. In the meantime, medical experiments were carried out on the inmates of concentration camps for the benefit of German military personnel. Many of these experiments resulted in incurable injury or death for the subjects. This episode sheds light on those procedures. High Altitude Experiments This quote is attributed to Walter Neff, a former inmate at a Nazi concentration camp. Ten prisoners were selected and were taken to the station as permanent experimental subjects, and they were told that nothing would happen to them. The so-called high-altitude experiments were conducted for the purpose of testing the limits of what a typical human being could endure at extremely high altitudes with and without a deficit of oxygen. The experiments were carried out at the Dachau concentration camp from the estimated period of March 1942 to August 1942. The results were to benefit the German Air Force. The aim was to replicate the kind of atmospheric conditions that a pilot would experience in combat while falling from exceedingly high altitudes without a parachute and a device from which to derive oxygen. The subject was locked in an airtight, low-pressure chamber. The conditions were altered to duplicate the kind of air pressure one would encounter at 68,000 feet. Related tests observed the effect of subarctic cold temperatures and a procedure to ascertain how well the human body can process ocean water. 200 subjects were chosen randomly. They consisted of Russians, Russian prisoners of war, Poles, Jews, 
and other German political prisoners. Only about 40 of them had been formally condemned to death. Dr. Sigmund Rascher promised them that if they volunteered for the experiment, they would be released. This was a lie. 78 of them were killed during these experiments. A report that was written in 1942 detailed how the tests were conducted on Jewish criminals. They were condemned for what the Nazis referred to as racial shame. Their definition of racial shame consisted of marrying or having sexual relations with Aryans. The following is quoted from a report submitted on April 4, 1942, by Dr. Rascher to Heinrich Himmler, a prominent administrator in the Nazi party who was a leading figure in executing the Holocaust. Only continuous experiments at altitudes higher than 10.5 kilometers, about 34,600 feet, resulted in death. These experiments showed that breathing stopped after about 30 minutes, while in two cases the electrocardiographically charted action of the heart continued for another 20 minutes. The third experiment of this type took such an extraordinary course that I called an SS physician of the camp as witness, since I had worked on these experiments all by myself. It was a continuous experiment without oxygen at a height of 12 kilometers, conducted on a 37-year-old Jew in good general condition. Breathing continued up to 30 minutes. After 4 minutes the VP began to perspire and to wiggle his head, after 5 minutes cramps occurred, between 6 and 10 minutes breathing increased in speed and the VP became unconscious, from 11 to 30 minutes breathing slowed down to 3 breaths per minute, finally stopping altogether. Severe cyanosis, bluish discoloration developed in between and foam appeared at the mouth, about one half hour after breathing had stopped, dissection was started. This statement was derived from Dr. Rasher's autopsy report. 37-year-old Jew in good general condition, when the cavity of the chest was open the pericardium, the sac surrounding the heart, was filled tightly, heart tamponade, compression of the heart by pericardial fluid. Upon opening of the pericardium 80 cc of clear yellowish liquid gushed forth, the moment the tamponade had stopped, the right oracle, atrium, began to beat heavily, at first at the rate of 60 actions per minute, then progressively slower. 20 minutes after the pericardium had been opened, the right oracle was opened by puncturing it. For about 15 minutes a thick stream of blood spurted forth. Thereafter clogging of the puncture wound in the oracle by coagulation, clot formation, of the blood and renewed acceleration of the action of the right oracle occurred. One hour after breathing had stopped, the spinal marrow, soft organic material, was completely severed and the brain removed. Thereupon the action of the oracle stopped for 40 seconds. It then renewed its action, coming to a complete standstill 8 minutes later. A heavy subarachnoid edema was found in the brain, swelling within the membrane that forms the blood-slash-brain barrier. In the veins and arteries of the brain a considerable quantity of air was discovered. This is an excerpt from a secret report submitted by Dr. Rascher to Himmler. On May 11, 1942, as a practical result of the more than 200 experiments conducted at Dachau, the following can be assumed. Jewish professional criminals who had committed race pollution were used. The question of the formation of embolism, sudden blocking, was investigated in 10 cases. Some of the VPs died during a continued high-altitude experiment, after the skull had been opened underwater an ample amount of air embolism was found in the brain vessels and, in part, free air in the brain ventricles, cavities. After relative recuperation from such a parachute descending test had taken place, however, before regaining consciousness, some VPs were kept underwater until they died. 
When the skull and the cavities of the breast and of the abdomen had been opened underwater, an enormous amount of air embolism was found in the vessels of the brain, the coronary vessels, and the vessels of the liver and the intestines, etc. This quote was extracted from an interim report by Dr. Rasher. The extreme fatal experiments will be carried out on specially selected VPs, otherwise it would not be possible to exercise the rigid control so extraordinarily important for practical purposes. In the trials, the defendants claim that though many of the test subjects were killed, they were not tortured and did not suffer pain. This was not reflected in the photographic evidence. It was clear the subjects reacted with spasms and convulsions. Pained expressions were clearly present on their faces. An oxygen source was removed from one subject in conditions typical of an altitude of 49,200 feet, followed by a full descent. He experienced altitude sickness and went into clonic convulsions, which includes alternate rapid muscular contraction and relaxation. These symptoms emerged throughout the course of a grand mal seizure. Here are more details as presented in Prosecution Exhibit 66, NO-402. At 46,900 feet, his arms were stretched stiffly forward. He sat up like a dog, his legs were spread stiffly apart. At 23,620 feet, he had uncoordinated movements with his extremities. At 19,690 feet, he had clonic convulsions and was groaning. At 18,040 feet, he yelled loudly. At 9,520 feet, he was yelling and convulsing his arms and legs, his head sank forward. At 6,560 feet, he yelled spasmodically, grimaced, and bit his tongue. At zero feet, he did not respond to speech and gave the impression of someone completely out of his mind. Then after reaching ground level, it took 24 hours for the victim to regain normal cohesion. None of the victims had any recollection of the experiments. The defendants argue that the experiments were carried out in the name of necessity of the state. The experiments were declared during the trial to be, quote, neither necessary nor a scientific success, end quote. For participation in and special responsibility for criminal conduct germane to the high-altitude experiments, Oscar Schroeder, Carl Jebhart, Rudolf Brandt, Wolfram Sievers, Siegfried Ruff, Hans Romberg, Hermann Becker Freisang, and George Welts were charged. Only Rudolf Brandt and Wolfram Siever were convicted. Freezing experiments. The freezing experiments were rolled out between August 1942 to May 1943. They were facilitated at the Dachau concentration camp for the benefit of the German Air Force. The intention was to investigate the effects felt by people who have been critically chilled or even frozen. Ice water and dry land presented the conditions in which the subjects were immersed. The environment was meant to duplicate those experienced by German pilots who have crashed into the ocean. Another objective was to determine how German army soldiers could fight in sub-zero temperatures and deep snow with greater endurance and resilience. The scientists aimed to develop methods to rewarm the pilots and troops after exposure to extreme cold. 
defendants Carl Brandt, Siegfried Hanloser, Schroeder, Gerhardt, Rudolf Brandt, Joachim Rogowski, Helmut Popendek, Sievers, Becker Freisang, and Welts were charged for launching these studies. The research was initiated for the Department for Aviation Medicine, while Becker Freisang was deputy. Welts and Dr. Rasher performed the procedures on site. The team's numbers expanded to include Professor Dr. Holslander and Dr. Finke of Kiel University. All officers in the medical service of the Air Force participated to some degree. The freezing experiments were organized into two classifications, cold water freezing and dry freezing. Test subjects included 280 to 300 political prisoners, non-German nationals, and prisoners of war. 360 to 400 such experiments were planned. Between 80 and 90 subjects died. Dr. Rasher went on to conduct more experiments using 50 to 60 subjects. 15 to 18 of them died. From December 17th to 18th, 1946, Walter Neff was questioned about these experiments by Prosecutor James McHaney. The following is an excerpt from their dialogue. Suppose you describe to the tribunal exactly how these freezing experiments were carried out, that is, what tests they made, how they measured the temperature, and how the temperature of the water was lowered in the basin, and so forth. These basins were filled with water, and ice was added until the water measured 3 degrees, and the experimental subjects were either dressed in a flying suit, or were placed into the ice water naked. Now, whenever the experimental subjects were conscious, it took some time until so-called freezing narcosis set in. The temperature was measured rectally, and through the stomach, through the galvanometer apparatus. The lowering of the temperature to 32 degrees was terrible for the experimental subject. At 32 degrees, the experimental subject lost consciousness. These persons were frozen down to 25 degrees body temperature, and now in order to enable you to understand this problem, I should like to tell you something about the Halsla, Ainer and Fink period. During the period when Halsla, Ainer and Fink were active, no experimental subject was actually killed in the water. Deaths occurred all the more readily because during revival the temperature dropped even further, further, and so heart failure resulted. This was also caused by wrongly applied therapy, so that in contrast to the low-pressure experiments, deaths were not deliberately caused. In the air pressure chamber, on the other hand, each death cannot be described as an accident, but as willful murder. However, it was different when Rosher personally took over these experiments. At that time, a large number of the persons involved were kept in the water until they were dead. Do you recall the occasion when two Russian officers were experimented upon in the freezing experiments? Yes. Will you relate that incident to the tribunal? Yes. It was the worst experiment, which was ever carried out. Two Russian officers were carried out from the bunker. We were forbidden to speak to them. They arrived at approximately 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Rosher had them undressed and they had to go into the basin naked. Hour after hour passed and while usually after a short time, 60 minutes, freezing had set in, these two Russians were still conscious after two hours. All our appeals to Rosher asking him to give them an injection were of no avail. Approximately during the third hour one Russian said to the other, Comrade, tell that officer to shoot us. The other replied, 
Don't expect any mercy from this fascist dog. Then they shook hands and said goodbye, comrade. If you can imagine that we inmates had to witness such a death, and could do nothing about it, then you can judge how terrible it is to be condemned to work in such an experimental station. After these words were translated for Rosher in a somewhat different form by a young Pole, Rosher went back into his office. The young Pole tried at once to give them an anesthetic with chloroform, but Rosher returned immediately and threatened to shoot us with his pistol if we dared approach these victims again. The experiment lasted at least five hours until death occurred. Both corpses were sent to Munich for autopsy in the Schwabing Hospital. How long did it normally take to kill a person in these freezing experiments? The length of the experiment varied, according to the individual case. Whether the subject was clothed or unclothed also made a difference. If he was slight in build and if in addition to that he was naked, death often occurred after only 80 minutes. But there were a number of cases where the experimental subject lived up to three hours, and remained in the water until finally death occurred. Heinrich Himmler wrote a letter to Dr. Rascher on October 24, 1942, regarding the doctors and assistants who refused to participate in these experiments, citing moral objections. Himmler was quoted as saying, I regard these people as guilty of treason and high treason, who, still today, reject these experiments on humans, and would instead let sturdy German soldiers die as a result of these cooling methods. The majority of the religious prisoners were executed at Dachau. There were 2,070 clergymen interred at the camp. Over a thousand died there. Most of them were Polish Catholic priests, though Protestant, Orthodox, and Muslim figures were also incarcerated and executed at this camp. Over 300 Polish priests were killed by medical experiments. Father Leo Michalowski testified for the prosecution at the Nuremberg trials. This is an excerpt from this testimony, as elicited by Prosecutor McHenry. Now, Father, did there come a time when you were experimented on in the concentration camp at Dachau? Yes. Malaria experiments, and also on one occasion we were engaged in high-altitude experiments. Did you say high-altitude experiments, Father? No, I said aviation experiments. And what do you mean by aviation experiments? Well, I have said it because we were dressed in aviators' uniforms, and then we were put into containers full of water and ice. Well, will you tell the tribunal about this other experiment? During those malaria attacks, on one occasion, I was called by Dr. Pratala and I was examined by a Polish physician. And Dr. Prattal told me, if I have any use for you, I will call you. However, I did not know what was going to be done with me. Several days later, that was on the 7th of October, 1942, a prisoner came and told me that I was to report to the hospital immediately. I thought I was going to be examined once more, and I was taken through the malaria station to Block 5 in Dachau, to the fourth floor of Block 5. There, the so-called aviation room, the aviation experimental station was located there, and there was a fence, a wooden fence so that nobody could see what was inside, and I was led there, and there was a basin with water and ice, which floated on the water. There were two tables, and there were two apparatus on there. Next to them there was a heap of clothing that consisted of uniforms, 
and Dr. Pratal was there, two officers in Air Force uniforms. However, I do not know their names. Now I was told to undress. I undressed and I was examined. The physician then remarked that everything was in order. Now wires had been taped to my back, also in the lower rectum. Afterwards I had to wear my shirt, my drawers, but then afterwards I had to wear one of the uniforms, which were lying there. Then I had also to wear a long pair of boots with cat's fur and one aviator's combination. And afterwards a tube was put around my neck and was filled with air. And afterwards the wires, which had been connected with me, they were connected to the apparatus, and then I was thrown into the water. All of a sudden I became very cold, and I began to tremble. I immediately turned to those two men and asked them to pull me out of the water because I would be unable to stand it much longer. However, they told me laughingly, well, this will only last a very short time. I sat in this water, and I had, and I was conscious for one hour and a half. I do not know exactly because I did not have a watch, but that is the approximate time I spent there. During this time the temperature was lowered very slowly in the beginning, and afterwards more rapidly. When I was thrown into the water, my temperature was lowered very slowly in the beginning, and afterwards more rapidly. When I was thrown into the water, my temperature was 37.6. Then the temperature became lower. Then I only had 33 and then as low as 30, but then I already became somewhat unconscious, and every 15 minutes some blood was taken from my ear. After having sat in the water for about half an hour, I was offered a cigarette. Later on I was given a little glass with schnapps, and then I was asked how I was feeling. Somewhat later still, I was given one cup of grog. This grog was not very hot. It was rather lukewarm. I was freezing very much in this water. Now my feet were becoming as rigid as iron, and the same thing applied to my hands, and later on my breathing became very short. I once again began to tremble, and afterwards cold sweat appeared on my forehead. I felt as if I was just about to die, and then I was still asking them to pull me out because I could not stand this much longer. Then Dr. Pratal came and he had a little bottle. And he gave me a few drops of some liquid out of this bottle, and I did not know anything about this liquid. It had a somewhat sweetish taste. Then I lost my consciousness. I do not know how much longer I remained in the water because I was unconscious. When I again regained consciousness, it was approximately between 8 o'clock and 8.30 in the evening. I was lying on a stretcher covered with blankets, and above me there was some kind of an appliance with lamps, which were warming me. In the room, there was only Dr. Prathal and two prisoners. Then Dr. Prathal asked me how I was feeling. Then I replied, first of all, I feel very exhausted, and furthermore I am also very hungry. Dr. Prathal had immediately ordered that I was to be given better food, and that I was also to lie in bed. One prisoner raised me on the stretcher and he took me under his arm, and he led me through the corridor to his room. During this time he spoke to me. And he told me, well, you do not know what you have even suffered. And in the room the prisoner gave me half a bottle of milk, one piece of bread and some potatoes, but that came from his own rations. Later on he took me to the malaria station 5, block 3, and there I was put to bed, and the very same evening a Polish prisoner, it was a physician, his first name was Dr. Adam, but I do not remember his other name. He came on official orders. He told me, 
Everything that has happened to you is a military secret. You are not to discuss it with anybody. If you fail to do so, you know what the consequences will be for you. You are intelligent enough to know that. Of course, I fully realized that I had to keep quiet about that. On one occasion I had discussed these experiments with one of my comrades. One of the nurses found out about this, and he came to see me and asked me if I was already tired of living, because I was talking about such matters. But, in the way these experiments were conducted, I do not need to add anything further to it. How long was it before you recovered from the effects of those freezing experiments? It took a long time. I also have had several, I have had a rather weak heart, and I have also had severe headaches, and I also get cramps in my feet very often. Do you still suffer from the effects of this experiment? I still have a weak heart. For example, I am unable to walk very quickly now, and I also have to sweat very much. Exactly, those are the results, but in many cases, I have had those afflictions ever since. Were you in good physical condition before you were subjected to malaria and freezing experiments? Since the time of this starvation, I weighed 57 kilograms in Dachau. When I came to the camp, I weighed about 100 kilo, I lost about one half of my weight. In the beginning, I was weighed, and I was in bed for about a week. And then my weight went down to 47 kilo. How much do you weigh now, father? I cannot tell you exactly, but I have not weighed myself lately, but I think at this time I weigh 55 kilogram. Do you know how you were rewarmed in these freezing experiments? I was warmed with these lamps, but I heard later that people were rewarmed by women. Do you know approximately how many inmates were subjected to the freezing experiments? I cannot tell you anything about this, because it was kept so secret, and because I was in there quite individually, and I was quite single during this experiment. Do you know whether anyone died as a result of this experiment? I cannot give you any information about that either. I have not seen anybody. But it was said in camp that quite a number of people died there during this experiment. The women who were used for the purposes of rewarming in the freezing experiments were dubbed concentration camp prostitutes. The following is quoted from a memorandum written by Dr. Rasher, dated November 5, 1942. For the resuscitation experiments by animal warmth after freezing, as ordered by the Reich leader SS, I had four women assigned to me from the women's concentration camp, Ravensbrück. One of the assigned women shows unobjectionably Nordic racial characteristics, blonde hair, blue eyes, corresponding head and body structure, 21 and 3 quarters years of age. I asked the girl why she had volunteered for the brothel. I received the answer, to get out of the concentration camp, for we were promised that all those who would volunteer for the brothel for half a year would then be released from the concentration camp. To my objection that it was a great shame to volunteer as a prostitute, I was told, rather half a year in the brothel than half a year in the concentration camp. Then followed an account of a number of most peculiar conditions at Camp Ravensbrück. Most of the reported conditions were confirmed by the three other prostitutes, and by the female warden who had accompanied them from Ravensbrück. It hurts my racial feelings to expose to racially inferior concentration camp elements a girl as a prostitute who has the appearance of a pure Nordic, and who could perhaps by assignment of proper work, be put on the right road. Therefore, I refused to use this girl for my experimental purposes, and gave the adequate reports to the camp commander, and the adjutant of the Reich leader SS. Dr. Rasher wrote a letter to Himmler on February 17, 1943, 
regarding the effectiveness of the human rewarming technique. Dear Reich Leader, Enclosed I present to you in condensed form, a summary of the results of the experiments made in warming up people who have been cooled off by using animal heat. Right now I am attempting to prove through experiments on human beings that it is possible to warm up people cooled off by dry cold just as fast as people who were cooled off by remaining in cold water. The Reich physician SS, SS Grupp and Fuberer Dr. Grewitz, doubted very much that that would be possible, and said that I would have to prove it first by 100 experiments. Up to now, I have cooled off about 30 people stripped in the open air during 9 to 14 hours at 27 degrees to 29 degrees. After a time, corresponding to a transport of one hour, I put these subjects in a hot bath. Up to now every single patient was completely warmed up within one hour at most, though some of them had their hands and feet frozen wide. In some cases, a slight fatigue with slightly rising temperature was observed on the day following the experiments. I have not observed any fatal results from this extremely fast warming up. I have not so far been able to do any warming up by sauna as ordered by you, my dear Reich leader, as the weather in December and January was too warm for any experiments in the open air, and right now the camp is closed on account of typhoid, and I am not allowed therefore to bring in subjects for sauna experiments. With most obedient greetings and sincere gratitude, and Heil Hitler. Yours very devotedly, Rusher. Another document, classified as secret, went as follows. Experiments for rewarming of intensely chilled human beings by animal warmth A purpose of the experiments, to ascertain whether the rewarming of intensely chilled human beings by animal warmth, i.e., the warmth of animals or human beings, is as good or better than rewarming by physical or medical means. B method of the experiments, the experimental subjects were cooled in the usual way, clad or unclad, in cold water of temperatures varying between 4 degrees Celsius and 9 degrees Celsius. The rectal temperature of every experimental subject was recorded thermoelectrically. The reduction of temperature occurred within the usual span of time, varying in accordance with the general condition of the body of the experimental subject, and the temperature of the water. The experimental subjects were removed from the water when their rectal temperature reached 30 degrees Celsius. At this time, the experimental subjects had all lost consciousness. In eight cases, the experimental subjects were then placed between two naked women in a spacious bed. The women were supposed to nestle as closely as possible to the chilled person. Then all three persons were covered with blankets. A speeding up of rewarming by light cradles or by medicines was not attempted. See results, 1. When the temperature of the experimental subjects was recorded, it was striking that an after-drop of temperature up to 3 degrees Celsius occurred, which is a greater after-drop than seen with any other method of rewarming. It was observed, however, that consciousness returned at an earlier point, that is, at a lower body temperature than with other methods of rewarming. Once the subjects regained consciousness they did not lose it again, but very quickly grasped the situation and snuggled up to the naked female bodies. The rise of body temperature then occurred at about the same speed as in experimental subjects who had been rewarmed by packing and blankets. Exceptions were four experimental subjects who, at body temperatures between 30 degrees Celsius and 32 degrees Celsius, performed the act of sexual intercourse. In these experimental subjects, the temperature rose very rapidly after sexual intercourse, which could be compared with the speedy rise in temperature in a hot bath. 2. Another set of experiments concerned the rewarming of intensely chilled persons by one woman. In all these cases, rewarming was significantly quicker than could be accomplished by two women. The cause of this seems to me that in warming by one woman only, personal inhibitions are removed, and the woman nestles up to the chilled individual much more intimately. Also in these cases, the return of complete consciousness was strikingly rapid. 
Only one experimental subject did not return to consciousness, and the warming effect was only slight. This person died with symptoms suggesting cerebral hemorrhage, as was confirmed by subsequent autopsy. D. Summary Rewarming experiments of intensely chilled experimental subjects demonstrated that rewarming with animal warmth was very slow. Only such experimental subjects whose physical condition permitted sexual intercourse rewarmed themselves remarkably quickly, and showed an equally strikingly rapid return to complete physical well-being. Since excessively long exposure of the body to low temperatures implies danger of internal damage, that method must be chosen for rewarming which guarantees the quickest relief from dangerously low temperatures. This method, according to our experience, is a massive and rapid supply of warmth by means of a hot bath. Rewarming of intensely chilled human beings by human or animal warmth can therefore be recommended only in such cases in which other possibilities for rewarming are not available, or in cases of specially tender individuals who possibly may not be able to stand a massive and rapid supply of warmth. As, for example, I am thinking of intensely chilled small children, who are best rewarmed by the body of their mothers, with the aid of hot water bottles. Malaria Experiments over 1,084 inmates of varied nationalities, Catholic priests among them, were herded into the malaria experiments at Dachau. These activities were carried forth to assess the effects of heterogeneous immunizations and other treatments. Malaria, typhus, and an epidemic of jaundice had become contagious and widely extended throughout countries occupied by Germany. These experiments occurred between February 1942 and April 1945. The concentration camp inhabitants selected for these procedures were healthy at the onset. The objective was to infect them deliberately with malaria by exposing them to mosquitoes that carried the virus. That, or they were injected with blood samples that were infected with malaria. Every month during this time, three to five inmates were given the malaria-infected blood so that other captives would be infected through close contact. Dr. Klaus Carl Schilling was assigned the task of carrying out these studies. Many physicians fled Germany to avoid being conscripted into committing such atrocities. After all, such conduct is in direct violation of the Hippocratic Oath, which every doctor swears to when the title of doctor is officially conferred upon them. This is a quote from the oath that forbids such a practice on ethical grounds. I will do no harm or injustice to them. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. In direct violation of the oath, Dr. Schiller launched the project whose intention was to cure humanity of malaria by any means necessary, even if it meant causing irreversible injury to the subjects, fatal or otherwise. In an affidavit handwritten by Schiller and submitted during his trial, he confessed to administering 900 to 1,000 prisoners. Several of the inmates died from tuberculosis, dysentery, and typhus. Father Koch, who endured this procedure, testified about his experience. He was x-rayed and sent to the malaria station. Having been situated in a small room, he was given a box of mosquitoes to hold. He had to retain it for a half hour every day for a week. 
He was instructed to hold the boxes between his legs while in bed. A blood smear was extracted from his ear every morning. Seventeen days after leaving the hospital, he was stricken with symptoms of malaria. The symptoms would reemerge every three weeks over a span of six months. Among the symptoms were high fever, chills, and joint pain. The Russians and Poles were injected either by the mosquitoes or by samples from the mucus glands of the mosquitoes. Thirty deaths were caused directly by malaria. Three to four hundred deaths were caused by complications from side effects. Father Leo Michalowski, who suffered the freezing experiments, was also a survivor of the malaria experiments. He testified about this experiment. This is an excerpt from that portion of his testimony. Now, Father, will you tell the tribunal just what happened when you were experimented on with malaria? That is, when it happened, and how you happened to be selected. I was that week that I fell down on the road because everybody was hungry in the camp. I wanted to be transferred to another assignment later on, where we got some bread to eat between meals, so my health could improve by the additional food. One man arrived and selected about 30 people for some easy labor. I also wanted to be selected for this assignment, and those who had been selected for this work were led away. We went in the direction where the work was located, and at the very last moment, Instead of going to the place of work, we were led to the camp hospital. We did not know what was going to be done with us there. I thought to myself that perhaps this was going to be some detail for easier work in the hospital. We were told that we should undress, and after we had undressed ourselves, our numbers were taken down, and then we asked what was going on, and they told us, smilingly, this is for air detail. But we were not told what was going to be done with us. Then the doctor came and told us all to remain, and that we were to be x-rayed. Now that our numbers had already been taken down, we were supposed to go to our blocks. I sat for two days in the block, and afterwards I was again called to the hospital, and there I was given malaria in such a manner that there were little cages with infected mosquitoes, and I had to put my hand on one of the little cages, and a mosquito stung me, and afterwards I was still in the hospital for five weeks. However, for the time being no symptoms of the disease showed themselves. Somewhat later, I don't exactly recall, two or three weeks, I had my first malaria attack. Such attacks recurred frequently, and several medicines were given to us for, against malaria. I was given such medicine as Neosalvison. I was given two injections of quinine. On one occasion I was given adabrine. And the worst was that one time when I had an attack I was given so-called parafir. I was given nine injections of that kind, one every hour, and that every second day through the seventh injection. All of a sudden my heart felt like it was going to be torn out. I became insane. I completely lost my language, my ability to speak. This lasted until evening. In the evening a nurse arrived, and wanted to give me the eighth injection. I was then able to speak and I told the nurse about all of the complications I had had, and that I did not want to receive the injection. The nurse had already poured out the injection, and said that he would report this to Dr. Schilling. After approximately 10 minutes, another nurse arrived and said that he would have to give me the injection after all. Then I said the same thing again, that I was not going to have the injection. However, he told me that he had to carry out that order. 
Then I replied that no matter what order he had, I would not be willing to commit suicide. Then he went away and returned once again after 10 minutes. He told me, I know you know what can happen if you don't accept the injection. Then I said in spite of everything, I refuse to receive another injection, and that I would tell that to the professor. I requested that he himself know that I would not be willing to receive the injection. So that the nurse would not have any further difficulty after 20 minutes, Dr. Ploetner came with four inmate nurses, and he talked to my comrades. There is going to be a big row here. Then I said, if I have resisted for such a long time, I will continue to do so. Dr. Ploetner, however, was very quiet. He only reached for my hand and he checked my pulse, then touched my head and asked me what complications I had had. I told him what I had had after that injection. And then he told the nurse to give me two tablets in order to remove the headache, and the pains in my kidneys. When I had been given that, Dr. Ploetner was about to leave, and told the nurses that they were to give me the rest of the injections. Then I said, Hautstromfuhrer, I refuse to be given that injection. The physician turned around after I had said that, and looked at me, and said, I am responsible for your life, not you, he told the nurse, the nurses complied with his order and it was then they gave me this injection. It was the same one to whom I had previously told that I did not want to have another injection. It was only strange that after the eighth injection no results happened, as they had done previously, so that in my opinion, I think that the nurse gave me some other injection. On the morning I was given the ninth injection. When I woke up in the morning, the results were then as usual. I became sick and I began to feel cold, and I had a high fever. Father, do I understand you to say that you were injected with malaria in the middle of 1942? It was approximately in the middle of 1942 when I was infected with malaria. Bone, muscle, and nerve regeneration and bone transplantation experiments. These procedures are remembered in the historical record as being among the most savage and sadistic of all the Nazi medical experiments. They demonstrate just how inhumane these odious doctors had become. Segments of bone would be removed. Legs were detached from hips. Arms were severed with shoulder blades. Muscles and nerves were stripped from the fully functional bodies of the healthier inmates. The doctors attempted to transplant the aforementioned parts to other convicts. The typical result was death. For those who were unlucky enough to pull through, mutilation and a lifetime of disability and its related disadvantages were assured. A group of young female Polish inmates who were subjected to experiments involving the application of sulfanilamide, an antibacterial drug, were also subjected to the regeneration and transplantation experiments. The only form of mercy came as evipan, and ether, which were used as anesthetics. Incisions would be made on the outer side of the upper leg, whereupon muscle would be extracted. The wound would then be closed and a cast would be applied. A week later the wound was reopened and more muscle was taken. Between 15 and 20 inmates were put through this torture from late 1942 into 1943. Three operations were performed on bones, fractures, transplantations, 
and bone splints. Some of the Polish women were operated on multiple occasions. The so-called feeble-minded were included in these experiments. Entire limbs would be transplanted from one subject to another. One person's leg would be amputated. They were killed as a conclusive gesture. A woman described as abnormal underwent a surgery that consisted of removing her entire arm with a shoulder blade connected. She was unable to raise the arm beyond her waist afterwards. Seventy-four Polish political prisoners, healthy and between the ages of 16 and 48, were forced into these procedures. The calf would be opened and the wound would be injected with an infection of staphylococcus, gas, gangrene, and tetanus. The first three subjects died a few days later. While on the operating table, the bones of the lower parts of both legs would be broken into several fragments with a hammer. When it came time to perform the muscles experiments, the upper or lower part of the leg would have large chunks of muscle removed. On one occasion, a small shard of bone was planted into a muscle. During the nerve procedures, parts of nerves were removed. So-called special operations were inflicted on mentally ill prisoners. An entire leg at the hip joint would be amputated. The same went with amputation of a whole arm, complete with shoulder blade. If the victims happened to be alive afterwards, they were killed with injections of evipan, a barbiturate that causes hypnotic and or sedative effects and causes death in excessive doses. The leg or arm of the victim would be taken to Holhelyken, a sanatorium. Dr. Zdenka Nedvedova Nehilda was transported to Dachau from Auschwitz to work as a doctor prisoner in Ravensbrück. She describes what she witnessed. Operations were performed on one Yugoslav, one Czech, two Ukrainian, two German, and about 18 Polish women, of whom six were operated on by force in the bunker with the help of SS men. Two of them were shot after their operation wounds had healed. After operations, no one except SS nurses was admitted to the persons operated on. Whole nights they lay without any assistance, and it was not permitted to administer sedatives even against the most intensive post-operational pains. From the persons operated on, 11 died or were killed, and 71 remained invalids for life. The following is extracted from the testimony by inmate Vladislava Karoluska. At Ravensbrück, our dresses were taken away from us, and we received the regular prison dress. Then I was sent to the block, and I stayed in quarantine for three weeks. After three weeks, we were taken to work. The work was hard physical work. In the spring, I was given other work and I was transferred to the workshop, which was called in German Betrieb. The work I did there was also very hard, and one week I had to work in the daytime, and the next week at night. In the spring, the living conditions in the camp grew worse and worse, and hunger began to reign in the camp. The food portions were smaller. We were undernourished, very exhausted, and we had no strength to work. In the spring of the same year, shoes and stockings were taken away from us, and we had to walk barefoot. The gravel in the camp hurt our feet. The most tiring was the so-called roll calls, which we had to stand several hours, sometimes even four hours. If a prisoner tried to put a piece of paper underneath her feet, she was beaten and ill-treated in an inhuman way. We had to stand at attention at the roll call place, 
and we were not allowed to move our lips, because then we were supposed to be praying, and we were not allowed to pray. Now, witness, were you operated on while you were in the Ravensbrück concentration camp? Yes, I was. Witness, you have told the tribunal that in July 1942 some 75 Polish girls, who were in the transport from Lublin, were called before the camp doctors in Ravensbrück. Yes. Now, were any of these girls selected for an operation? On this day, we did not know why we were called before the camp doctors, and on the same day, 10 out of 25 girls were taken to the hospital, but we did not know why. Four of them came back, and six stayed in the hospital. On the same day, six of them came back to the block after having received some injection, but we did not know what kind of injection. On the 1st of August, those six girls were called to the hospital again. Those girls who received injections were kept in the hospital, but we could not get in touch with them to hear from them why they were put in the hospital. A few days later, one of my comrades succeeded in getting close to the hospital and learned from one of the prisoners that all were in bed and that their legs were in casts. On the 14th of August, the same year, I was called to the hospital and my name was written on a piece of paper. I did not know why. Besides me, eight other girls were called to the hospital. We were called at a time when executions usually took place, and I thought I was going to be executed because some girls had been shot down before. In the hospital, we were put to bed, and the ward in which we stayed was locked. Then a German nurse arrived and gave me an injection in my leg. After this injection, I vomited and I was weak. Then I was put on the hospital cot, and they brought me to the operating room, then I lost consciousness, and when I revived, I noticed that I was in a proper hospital ward. I recovered consciousness for a while, and I felt severe pain in my leg. Then I lost consciousness again. I regained consciousness in the morning, and then I noticed that my leg was in a cast from the ankle up to the knee, and I felt very great pain in this leg, and had a high temperature. I noticed also that my leg was swollen from the toes up to the groin. The pain was increasing, and the temperature, too, and the next day I noticed that some liquid was flowing from my leg. The third day I was put on the hospital trolley and taken to the dressing room. Then I saw Dr. Fisher again. He had on an operating gown and rubber gloves on his hands. A blanket was put over my eyes, and I did not know what was done with my leg, but I felt great pain, and I had the impression that something must have been cut out of my leg. Two weeks later, we were all taken to the operating theater again, and put on the operating tables. The bandage was removed, and that was the first time I saw my leg. The incision went so deep that I could see the bone. On 8th of September, I went back to the block. I couldn't walk. The pus was draining from my leg, the leg was swollen up, and I could not walk. In the block, I stayed in bed for one week, then I was called to the hospital again. I could not walk, and I was carried by my comrades. In the hospital, I met some of my comrades who were there after the operation. This time I was sure I was going to be executed, because I saw an ambulance standing outside the office which was used by the Germans to transport people intended for execution. Then we were taken to the dressing room where Dr. Oberhuser and Dr. Scheidlowski examined our legs. We were put to bed again, and on the same day, in the afternoon, I was taken to the operating theater, and the second operation was performed on my leg. I was put to sleep in the same way as before, having received an injection. This time I again saw Dr. Fisher. I woke up in the regular hospital ward, and I felt a much greater pain and had a higher temperature. The symptoms were the same. The leg was swollen, and the pus flowed from my leg. After this operation, I felt still worse, and I could not move. While I was in the hospital, Dr. Oberhuser treated me cruelly. Witness, 
you have told the tribunal that you were operated on the second time on the 16th of September 1942? Is that right? Yes. When did you leave the hospital after this second operation? After the second operation, I left the hospital on October 6th. Was your leg healed at that time? My leg was swollen up, caused me great pain, and the pus drained from my leg. Were you able to work? I was unable to work, and I had to stay in bed because I could not walk. Do you remember when you got up out of bed, and were able to walk? I stayed in bed several weeks, and then I got up and tried to walk. How long was it until your leg was healed? The pus was flowing from my leg till June 1943, and at that time my wound was healed. Were you operated on again? Yes, I was operated on again in the bunker. In the bunker? That is not in the hospital? Not in the hospital, but in the bunker. At the end of February 1943, Dr. Oberhuser called us and said, those girls are new guinea pigs, and we were very well known under this name in the camp. Then we understood that we were persons intended for experiments, and we decided to protest against the performance of these operations on healthy people. We drew up a protest in writing, and we went to the camp commandant. Not only those girls who had been operated on before, but other girls who were called to the hospital came to the office. The girls who had been operated on used crutches and they went without any help. We did not get any answer, and we were not allowed to talk to the commandant. On August 15, 1943, a policewoman came and read off the names of 10 new prisoners. She told us to follow her to the hospital. We refused to go to the hospital because we thought that we were intended for a new operation. All prisoners in the camp were told to stay in the blocks. All of the women who lived in the same block where I was were told to leave the block and stand in line in front of block 10 at a certain time. Then the overseer bins appeared and called out 10 names, and my name was among them. We went out of the line and stood before block 9 in line. Then Bin said, why do you stand in line as if you were to be executed? We told her that operations were worse for us than executions, and that we would prefer to be executed rather than to be operated on again. In the meantime, one fellow prisoner who used to work in the canteen walked past. She told us that Bins had asked for help from SS men to take us to the hospital by force. Then Bins and the camp police appeared. They drove us out from the lines by force. She told us that she was putting us into the bunker as punishment for not following her orders. Five prisoners were put into each cell, although one cell was only intended for one person. The cells were quite dark, without lights. We stayed in the bunker the whole night long and the next day. The woman guard of the bunker unlocked our cell, and took me out. I thought that I was to be interrogated or beaten. She took me down the corridor. She opened one door, and behind the door, stood SS man Dr. Trommel. He told me follow him upstairs. Following Dr. Trommel, I noticed there were other cells, with beds and bedding. He put me in one of the cells. Then he asked me whether I would agree to a small operation. I told him that I did not agree to it because I had already undergone two operations. He told me that this was going to be a very small operation, and that it would not harm me. I told him that I was a political prisoner, and that operations could not be performed on political prisoners without their consent. He told me to lie down on the bed, I refused to do so. He repeated it twice. Then he went out of the cell, and I followed him. He went quickly downstairs and locked the door. Standing in front of the cell, I noticed a cell on the opposite side of the staircase, and I also noticed some men in operating gowns. There was also one German nurse ready to give an injection. Near the staircase stood a stretcher. That made it clear to me that I was going to be operated on again in the bunker. I decided to defend myself to the last. In a moment, Trommel came back with two SS men. One of these SS men told me to enter the cell. 
I refused to do it, so he forced me into the cell, and threw me on the bed. Dr. Trommel took me by the left wrist and pulled my arm back. With his other hand, he tried to gag me, putting a piece of rag into my mouth, because I shouted. The second SS man took my right hand and stretched it. Two other SS men held me by my feet. Immobilized, I felt somebody giving me an injection. I defended myself for a long time, but then I grew weaker. The injection had its effect, I felt sleepy. I heard Trommel saying, that is all. I regained consciousness again, but I don't know when. Then I noticed that a German nurse was taking off my dress, I then lost consciousness again, I regained it in the morning. Then I noticed that both my legs were in iron splints, and were bandaged from the toes up to the groin. I felt a severe pain in my feet, and had a temperature. On the afternoon of the same day, a German nurse came and gave me an injection. In spite of my protests, she gave me this injection in my thigh, and told me that she had to do it. Four days after this operation, a doctor from Hohenlichen arrived, again I was given an injection to put me to sleep, and as I protested, he told me that he would change the dressing. I felt a higher temperature and a greater pain in my legs. Dr. Nedvik Dovid Najelda said that streptococcus, tetanus, and gas phlegmon cultures were injected into the wounds to deliberately create the conditions for the development of osteomyelitis, or inflammation of the bones. Arms and legs were wrapped in sterile gauze and transported to an SS hospital where attempts were made to transplant them onto wounded German soldiers. Left behind were the victims of the experiments, who writhed in extreme pain and were denied sedatives. Eleven died and 71 suffered permanent disability. Defendants Gerbhardt, Oberheiser, and Fischer were convicted of criminal conduct for their involvement in these atrocities. Mustard Gas Experiments Within the rubric of military medical circles in Germany, wounds left by chemical warfare agents became a serious concern. Throughout the entire duration of the war, Lost, an asphyxiating poison gas, otherwise known as mustard gas, was issued to test subjects in the concentration camps with German armed forces as the sole benefit Hitler himself issued a decree in March 1944 to activate medical research concerning gas warfare, with Karl Brandt assigned to catalyze the experiments. The intention was to develop a pharmaceutical treatment for chemical burns left behind by mustard gas. Wounds were cut into inmates at the camps, with mustard gas being applied immediately thereafter. Other inmates were forced to inhale the gas, ingest it as a liquid, or have it injected. In 1939, a report detailed the effects of these treatments. The subjects were referred to as human guinea pigs, upon whose arms the gas was applied, leading to infections. To quote this report, the arms in most of these cases are badly swollen and pains are enormous. About 220 Russian, Polish, Czech, and German inmates were forced to participate. Approximately 50 died. Another gas used in these experiments was called Phosgene, 
It is suffocating and very poisonous. Forty Russian prisoners of war were submitted to these procedures. They were described as middle-aged, weak, and underfed. They were given an experimental drug whose stated purpose was to counteract the effects of false gene poisoning. Four of the subjects died. The others suffered critical edema, or fluid retention, especially in the lungs, where the accumulation was noted as being abnormal. An inmate by the name of Ferdinand Hole described his experience with the mustard gas experiments in his testimony on January 3, 1947. The first experiments were attended by Professor Hurt. After that, it was a German aviation officer who carried out the experiments. The prisoners were stripped completely naked. They came into the laboratory one after the other. Then I had to hold their arms, and a drop of this fluid was rubbed on their arm 10 centimeters above their forearm. Then the people who had been treated accordingly had to stand waiting with their arms spread out. After about 10 hours, maybe it was a bit longer, burn injuries began to cover their whole body. Their bodies were burned in all of those places where fumes from this gas reached. Some of the people also went blind. The pain was so tremendous that one could hardly stand being near the victims. Then they were photographed each day, all of the injured parts of their bodies, each of their burnt areas. About on the fifth or sixth day, we had our first death. At that time, the dead were sent to Strasbourg, because there was no crematorium in the camp. The dead man was sent back and was dissected in the Ananerba, SS Research Foundation. His intestines, lungs and so forth were completely eaten away. Then, during the following several days, seven more people died. This treatment lasted about two months until they were more or less transportable, then these people were sent to a different camp. On the following day, that is, on the seventh day of the experiment, another seven of the experimental subjects died. The last 22 inmates were reassigned to another camp. More from Hull's report. Other experiments on concentration camp inmates of the Knotzweiler concentration camp were carried out in the gas chamber. The experimental subjects had to enter this gas chamber two by two. They had to smash small ampules, which contained the liquid. The liquid evaporated, and the experimental subject then had to inhale the resulting vapor. Usually the experimental subjects became unconscious. The breathing organs of the experimental subjects were likewise destroyed. Their lungs had been eaten away by the gas. About 150 concentration camp inmates were experimented upon in this manner. Approximately the same percentage as in the first series died as a result of this type of experimentation. Other lost mustard gas experiments were carried out by means of injection. In a special room adjoining the crematorium. The victims, died without exception. Another type of experiment was carried out on the experimental subjects, who had to take the liquid orally. Carl Brandt defended these practices by saying that all nations engaged in them. To quote Brandt, The general need for experiments on human beings, and only those are relevant here, has been recognized by all nations as a military necessity. Carl Brandt, Rudolf Brandt, and Wolfram Sievers were convicted of special responsibility for these offenses. Sulfonylamide Experiments Following a large rash of deaths due to gas gangrene during the Russian winter battles from 1941 to 1942, the sulfonylamide experiments were carried out to determine if the drug could be applied on fallen soldiers so that their lengthy transport to military hospitals would not see them expired upon arrival. 
German allies refer to this medicine as the, quote, miracle drug, end quote. The soldiers demanded to be informed by the medical officers why it wasn't being administered. If there was no way to treat gaping wounds on the battlefield, there was no alternative but to heal them surgically. The Nazi doctors tested the drug at the Ravensbrück women's concentration camp between July 20th, 1942 and August 1943. Fifteen male inmates also underwent the experimental procedure. In all, 60 Polish female inmates were subjected to the sulfonylamide trials in five groups of 12. In July 1942, preliminary experiments were carried out on 15 male inmates. The objective was to develop a technique for artificially creating a gangrenous infection that would make an incision 10 centimeters long into a muscle. They coated wood shavings in infectious bacteria and forced it into the wounds. With every application of this method, their goal was to produce gangrene that was more and more grievous. From there, they moved on to the female Polish inmates. This is a quote from the affidavit submitted by Defendant Fisher on these clinical trials. Three series of operations were performed each involving 10 persons, one using the bacterial culture and fragments of wood, the second using bacterial culture and fragments of glass, and the third using culture plus glass and wood. None of the subjects died right away, so the scientists doubled up on their efforts. To quote Fisher, In order to make the gangrene infection still more severe, a new series of experiments involving 24 Polish female inmates was carried out. In this series, the circulation of blood through the muscles was interrupted in the area of infection by tying off the muscles on either end. This series of experiments resulted in very serious infections, and a number of deaths occurred. According to the evidential record, five of the test subjects died because of the experiments. Six were executed later by other methods. One of the Polish women was a 23-year-old named Kurowska. She was artificially infected with gangrene. Her legs swelled and turned black. She was given some care for the first few days, but she was taken to hospital soon after, where she suffered and died. None of the victims were given morphine or any kind of medicine to alleviate their suffering. They were given bandages for the wounds, but this resulted in the stench of pus permeating the air in the rooms. This is part of the testimony given by former inmate Brawl Plater. My leg pained me, I felt severe pain, and blood flowed from my leg. At night, we were all alone without any care. I heard only the screaming of my fellow prisoners, and I heard also that they asked for water. There was nobody to give us any water or bedpans. The infected limbs could not be amputated because the inflammation was too rapid and the infections became acute in three weeks. Former inmate Jadwiga Dezido, born in Poland, was questioned about her experiences as a test subject in the Nazi medical experiments. This is an extract from that portion of the trial. Will you kindly explain the circumstances of this operation to the tribunal? In 1942, great hunger and terror reigned in the camp. The Germans were at the zenith of their power. You could see haughtiness and pride on the face of every SS woman. 
We were told every day that we were nothing but numbers, that we had to forget that we were human beings, that we had nobody to think of us, that we would never return to our country, that we were slaves, and that we had only to work. We were not allowed to smile, to cry, or to pray. We were not allowed to defend ourselves when we were beaten. There was no hope of going back to my country. Now, witness, did you say that you were operated on in the Ravensbrück concentration camp in November 1942? Yes. Now, on November 22, 1942, the day of this operation, will you kindly tell the tribunal all that happened during that time? That day the policewoman, camp policewoman, came with a piece of paper where my name was written down. The policewoman told us to follow her. When I asked her where we were going, she told me that she didn't know. She took us to the hospital. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. It might have been an execution, transport for work, or operation. Dr. Oberhuser appeared, and told me to undress and examined me. Then I was x-rayed. I stayed in the hospital. My dress was taken away from me. I was operated on November 22, 1942 in the morning. A German nurse came, shaved my legs, and gave me something to drink. When I asked her what she was going to do with me, she did not give me any answer. In the afternoon, I was taken to the operating room on a small hospital trolley. I must have been very exhausted and tired, and that is why I don't remember whether I got an injection or whether a mask was put on my face. I didn't see the operating room. When I came back, I remember that I had no wound on my leg, but a trace of a sting. From that time, I don't remember anything till January. I learned from my comrades who lived in the same room that my leg had been operated on. I remember what was going on in January, and I know that the dressings had been changed several times. Will you kindly tell the tribunal some of the details there, and the names of the persons who were to be operated on? In the spring of 1943, the operations were stopped. We thought that we could live like that till the end of the war. On the 15th of August, a policewoman came and called 10 girls. We didn't want to let our comrades out of the block. The policewoman came, and the assistants, the overseers, and with them, Benz. We were driven out of the block into the street. We stood there in line, 10 at a time, and Benz herself read off the names of 10 girls. When they refused to go because they were afraid of a new operation, and were not willing to undergo a new operation, she herself gave her word of honor that it was not going to be an operation, and she told them to follow her. We remained standing before the block. Then several minutes later, our comrades ran to us and told us that SS men have been called for in order to surround them. The camp police arrived, and drove our comrades out of the line. We were locked in the block. The shutters were closed. We were three days without any food, and without any fresh air. We were not given parcels that arrived in the camp at that time. The first day the camp commandant and Benz came and made a speech. The camp commandant said that there had never been a revolt in the camp, and that this revolt must be punished. She believed that we would reform, and that we would never repeat it. It if were to happen again, she had to assess people with weapons. My comrade, who knew German, answered that we were not revolting, that we didn't want to be operated on because five of us died after the operation, and because six had been shot down after having suffered so much. Then Benz replied, death is victory. You must suffer for it and you will never get out of the camp. Defendants Carl Brandt, Han Loser, Gerbhardt, Murogowski, 
Oberheiser, and Fisher were convicted of having special responsibility for and involvement in criminal conduct involving the sulfonilamide experiments. Seawater Experiments These experiments were conducted at the Dachau Concentration Camp. The aim was to make ocean water drinkable due to desalinization, or process to remove the salt. Many German pilots and sailors were liable to crash into the ocean and struggle to survive until they were rescued. If they were to be stranded in such a location, an ability to process brine into drinkable water would be essential. These experiments were conducted from July to September 1944. 44 subjects aged 16 to 49 were selected. Most were gypsies of Czech, German, and Polish origin. Over the course of the experiment, they received no food for five to nine days. They were promised extra food rations and easier work details as rewards, but they received nothing of the sort. The subjects were broken up into four groups. Group 1 received no water of any kind. Group 2 drank typical seawater. Group 3 drank seawater that was processed by what is called the Barca method. That water was called Burkatit. Group 4 drank ocean water that was treated to remove the salt. Group 1, the so-called thirst group, received no food from which their bodies could have derived liquid. The other groups were given sea emergency rations, the shipwreck diet, essentially. This consisted of one ounce per day of biscuits, sweetened condensed milk, butter, fat or margarine, and chocolate. Group 3 drank seawater that was processed in such a way that the saline content was not subtracted, only concealed. In experiments involving salt, one must be very careful about the methodology utilized to administer concentrated salt solutions. Severe symptoms of poisoning can result. An indication of how parched the subjects were emerged when inmate Joseph Vorlasek worked as an assistant nurse. At one point, he spilled some fresh water on the floor and forgot that the rag he used to clean it up was left on the same spot. The subjects grabbed the dirty rag and sucked water from it. Joseph was threatened with experiment participation if he allowed this to happen again. During the Nuremberg trials, one of the victims tried to stab one of the physicians who executed the experiments with a dagger. He was charged with contempt of court. This is an excerpt from that witness's testimony about his experience as a test subject for the seawater experiments. At first, we got potatoes, milk and then we got these cookies, and dextrose, and rusks. That lasted about one week. Then we got nothing at all. Then the doctor from the Luftwaffe said, Now you have to drink seawater on an empty stomach. That lasted about one or two weeks. This Rudy Taubman got excited and didn't want to participate, and the doctor from the Luftwaffe said, If you get excited and mutiny, I will shoot you, and then we were all quiet. Then we began to drink seawater. I drank the worst kind that was yellowish. We drank two or three times a day, and then in the evening, we drank the yellow kind. 
there were two kinds of water, white water, and yellow water, and I drank the yellow kind. After a few days, the people became raving mad, they foamed at the mouth. The doctor from Luftwaffe came with a cynical laugh, and said, now it is time to make the liver punctures. I remember one very well. The first row on the left when you came in, the second bed, that was the first one. He went crazy, and barked like a dog. He foamed at the mouth. The doctor from the Luftwaffe took him down on a stretcher with a wide sheet over him, and he stuck a needle into his right side, and there was a hypodermic needle on it, and it bled, and it was very painful. We were all quiet and excited. When that was over, the other inmates took their turn. The people were crazy from thirst and hunger, we were so hungry, but the doctor had no pity on us. He was as cold as ice. He didn't take any interest in us. Then, one gypsy, I don't know his name anymore, ate a little piece of bread once, or drank some water, I don't remember just what he did. The doctor from the Luftwaffe got very angry and mad. He took the gypsy and tied him to a bedpost, and sealed his mouth. Witness, do you mean that he put adhesive tape over this gypsy's mouth? Yes. Did you receive a liver puncture? Yes. Did the professor tell you for what reason he gave you that liver puncture? The doctor from the Luftwaffe came to me, and said, Now, Helen Reiner, it's your turn. I was lying on the bed. I was very weak from this water, and from not having anything to eat. He said, Now, lie on your left side and take the clothes off your right side. I held on to the bedstead on top of me, and the doctor from the Luftwaffe sat down next to me, and pushed a long needle into me. It was very painful. I said, Doctor, what are you doing? The doctor said, I have to make a liver puncture so that the salt comes out of your liver. The witness listed other complications of the seawater experiments, such as diarrhea, convulsions, hallucinations, delirium, and, for many, death. Participation in and responsibility for these experiments was attributed to defendants Schroeder, Gerhardt, Sievers, Becker-Freisang, and Bagelbeck. Epidemic Jaundice Experiments The epidemic jaundice experiments were conducted from June 1943 to January 1945. The subjects were inmates at the Sockenhausen and Notzweiler concentration camps. They were intended to benefit the German Air Force. Epidemic jaundice is a synonym for hepatitis. The goal was to develop an inoculation to prevent the transmission of the virus. After Germany attacked Russia, hepatitis caused the deaths of nearly 60% of the Germans involved in the campaign. Germany's medical community was divided on whether the condition was caused by bacteria or a virus. Eight Polish Jews who had been condemned to death at Auschwitz for participating in the Polish resistance movement were subjected to these experiments at Sachsenhausen. The germs of the virus were harvested from animals and injected into the subjects. All eight of them died. Sterilization. From March 1941 to January 1945, the Jewish female inmates at the Ravensbrück concentration camp, among others, were chosen as test subjects for the mass campaign to sterilize Jews. 
By this point, the Third Reich determined that one of their primary directives must be to achieve racial purity by exterminating all Jews from Germany and all of the countries it had invaded and occupied. There was a shortage of laborers, so they decided to sterilize Jews who were able to work, reserving paid employment for ethnic Germans. The Nazis desired a sterilization method that was fast-acting. The techniques they selected were radiation, drugs, and surgery. Rudolf Brandt described the purpose of performing these procedures in an affidavit. Himmler was extremely interested in the development of a cheap and rapid sterilization method which could be used against enemies of Germany, such as Russians, Poles, and Jews. One hoped thereby not only to defeat the enemy, but also to exterminate him. The capacity for work of the sterilized persons could be exploited by Germany, while the danger of propagation would be eliminated. As this mass sterilization was part of Himmler's racial theory, particular time and care were devoted to these sterilization experiments. Surgical sterilization was of course known in Germany, and applied, this included castration. For mass application, however, this procedure was considered as too slow, and too expensive. It was further desired that a procedure be found which would result in sterilization that was not immediately noticeable. Defendant Dr. Picorni, in October 1941, advised Himmler that Dr. Maddaus had produced sterility in animals with the synthetic drug produced from the caladium plant. It could be administered orally or injected. This is an excerpt from Pacomi's letter. The immense importance of this drug, in the present fight of our people, occurred to me. If, on the basis of this research, it were possible to produce a drug, which after a relatively short time, effects an imperceptible sterilization on human beings, then we would have a new powerful weapon at our disposal. The thought alone that the three million Bolsheviks, at present German prisoners, could be sterilized so that they could be used as laborers but be prevented from reproduction, opens the most far-reaching perspectives. The problem with using the caladium plant and its properties was that it only grew in North America. Dr. Karl Taubeck stated that the plant comes from Brazil and was used by them to sterilize their enemies by placing it in food or inserting it in arrow wounds. Though it could have been grown in hothouses, developing the drug would have been too slow for the large-scale experimentations for which it was needed. Ultimately, a method of sterilization was applied which involved injecting a corrosive solution into the uterus. This experiment was conducted on several hundred female Jews and gypsies at Auschwitz. The radiation experiments were carried out at Auschwitz. After receiving severe doses of radiation through x-rays in the groin, the genitals were surgically removed and examined to ascertain how the radiation transformed the affected region. A minimum of 100 men of Polish, Russian, and French extraction were forced into these experiments, as were some prisoners of war. Of those considered, only young, well-built, and healthy inmates were selected. The radiation was so damaging that nearly all of them expired. It left them with severe burns, which were left untreated at the cost of their lives. Defendant Victor Brock, 
who was the chief administrative officer in the Führer's Chancellery, marveled at the efficiency of this process in a letter to Heinrich Himmler, as noted in the following statement. Castration by X-ray, however, is not only relatively cheap, but can also be performed on many thousands in the shortest time. I think that at this time it is already irrelevant whether the people in question become aware of having been castrated after some weeks or months, once they feel the effects. He later denied that he participated in these experiments, but he was convicted for his involvement, along with Gebhardt and Rudolf Brandt. Typhus Experiments Typhus emerged as a serious medical affliction in the fall of 1941, following Germany's attack on Russia. The supply of vaccines was insufficient, with only medical personnel being inoculated. From December 1941 to March 1945, an experimental medical program was instituted using inmates of the Buchenwald and Notzweiler concentration camps as guinea pigs. They were used to evaluate vaccines for use against not only typhus, but also yellow fever, smallpox, paratyphoid A and B, cholera, and diphtheria. They hoped to develop a typhus convalescent serum they could manufacture in short order. Of all the inmates considered, 729 were subjected to these experiments. Casualties numbered at 154. In the earlier stages of these experiments, the inmates were infected with the virus through deep and superficial cuts made in their upper arms. Other subjects received infections through intravenous injections of fresh blood that contained the typhus virus. Another typhus vaccine from chicken egg yolks was also tested. The Weigel vaccine was known to be effective. It was produced from the intestines of lice. The problem with this vaccine was that it was too expensive and complicated for mass production. With a starting point of January 6, 1942, several vaccines were tested at Buchenwald. Many of the subjects died as a result. Typically, 40 to 60 subjects were used in any given trial. Throughout the course of one trial, dated between April 24th and June 1st, 1943, 39 inmates were injected with typhus, with 21 dying. In stage one of the experiments, the virus was injected artificially, but lacerating the skin and feeding the flesh with typhus culture extracted from contagious lice. In 1943, subjects were injected with fresh blood containing the typhus virus intravenously or intramuscularly. Out of 25 subjects who received the culture, 19 died. Dr. Eugene Kogan estimated during his testimony at the Nuremberg trial that at least 95% of all subjects perished. Dr. Kogan recalled the more egregious effects of typhus on the patients he observed. After a certain period, when the actual illness had set in after infection, ordinary symptoms of typhus would appear, which, as is well known, is one of the most serious illnesses. The infection, as I have already described to you, became so powerful during the last two and a half years that the typhus almost always appeared in its most horrible form. 
There were cases of raving madness, delirium, people would refuse to eat, and a large percentage of them would die. Those who experienced the disease in a milder form, perhaps because their constitutions were stronger, or because the vaccine was effective, were forced continuously to observe the death struggles of the others. And all this took place in an atmosphere hardly possible to imagine. Poison Experiments The poison experiments conducted at the Buchenwald and Sachsenhausen concentration camps were conducted without the scientific aim to achieve a healing or curing method. Rather, the goal was to determine how long it took for someone to die from the poison. The personnel involved were also keen to observe the pain and suffering felt by the subjects leading up to their deaths. The doctors wanted to find out which form of poison acted as the most rapid, efficient, and effective biological killing machine. First forms of poison administered were the organic substances found in plants. It was given to Russian prisoners in their food. They were not aware of the presence of the poison in their meal. The doctors watched their reactions from behind a curtain. All four of the men survived, but they were strangled on hooks mounted to a wall in a crematorium so autopsies could be performed. Dr. Kogan recalls the effects of the poison on the Russian subjects. In the first case, various preparations of the so-called alkaloid series were put into noodle soup and administered to four of these prisoners of war, who were in Block 46. They, of course, had no idea what was going on. Two of these prisoners became so sick that they vomited, one was unconscious, the fourth showed no symptoms at all. Thereupon, all four were strangled in the crematorium. They were dissected, and the contents of their stomachs and other effects were determined. Defendant Joachim Rosgowski, chief hygienist of the Reich Physician SS, described experiments involving five inmates shot with bullets containing crystallized poison in a report dated September 12, 1944. The experimental subjects, in a line position, were each shot in the upper part of the left thigh. The thighs of two of them were cleanly shot through. Even afterwards, no effect of the poison was to be observed. These two experimental subjects were therefore exempted. The symptoms of the condemned three showed a surprising similarity. At first no peculiarities appeared. After 20 to 25 minutes, a motor agitation, movement, and a slight gelism, excretion of saliva, set in, but stopped again. After 40 to 45 minutes, a stronger salivation set in. The poisoned person swallowed repeatedly, but later, the flow of saliva became so strong that it could not even be overcome by swallowing. Foamy saliva flowed from their mouths. Then choking and vomiting set in. After 58 minutes, the pulse of two of them could no longer be felt. One of the poisoned persons tried to vomit. To do so he introduced four fingers of his hand up to the knuckled and to his throat, but nevertheless could not vomit. His face was flushed. The other two experimental subjects had already early shown a pale face. The other symptoms were the same. The motor unrest increased so much that the persons flung themselves up and down, rolled their eyes, and made meaningless motions with their hands and arms. Finally, the agitation subsided, the pupils dilated to the maximum, and the condemned lay motionless. Death occurred 121, 
123 and 129 minutes after entry of the projectile. All told, it took up to 2 hours and 9 minutes to kill the subjects. Defendants Genskin, Gerbhardt, Morgowski, and Popendick were charged with criminal conduct for these experiments, though only Morgowski was convicted. Incendiary Bomb Experiments the incendiary bomb experiments were conducted by Dr. Ding Schuler at Buchenwald. The objective was to test the effectiveness of the formulation of the liquid carbon tetrachloride solvent, otherwise referred to as R17. In addition to this, other treatments for wartime injuries and burns caused by detonated bombs were tested, typically administered in the forms of ointments and liquids. Their aim, were the experiments to be successful, was to install dispensaries at air raid precaution centers for all victims of the bombs. The experiments were conducted from November 19th to the 25th in 1943. Five people were chosen to be deliberately burned with ignited phosphorus, which was extracted from an incendiary bomb. The burns incurred by the victims were very severe, causing excruciating pain and lasting, lifelong injuries. The fires ignited on the affected areas burn themselves out, sometimes for 30 seconds, sometimes for 40 seconds, and even as long as an entire minute. In every case, swelling, blisters, and scabs would appear on the affected areas. The ointments were applied to the burns. It took up to six weeks for the burns to heal. Dr. Eugene Kogan, who worked on these experiments, noted in his testimony at the Nuremberg trials that it was unlikely the burns would ever completely heal. The scars were as big and deep as two or two and a half centimeters. The participants were German criminals. The drugs used to heal the burns were determined to be ineffective. All the doctors charged with this offense were acquitted. Phlegmon, Polygol, and Phenol Experiments The Phlegmon experiments involved deliberate inducement of inflammation and infection in the subjects. These experiments were carried out at the Dachau and Auschwitz concentration camps. The inmates were artificially infected with pus. This procedure was extremely painful. Biochemical treatments were administered to half of them. The other half received sulfonilamide. The subjects who were severely ill refused to take the biochemical tablets because they were instructed to take them every five minutes, all day and all night, and it was more than they could endure. Out of 20 German inmates subjected to this experiment, seven died. In a second trial, 40 clergymen of varied nationality were infected. Twelve died. According to one physician's testimony at the Nuremberg trials, the biochemical treatment was tested to see if it could cure an inmate's thirst for water. It did not. Drugs to treat the subjects who were injected with pus included allopathic and half-biological treatments. Sulfonilamide is an allopathic treatment. The doctors wanted to prove that biological drugs were not sufficient to cure the diseases that were engendered in the victims. The subjects who were treated biologically developed deep abscesses. Some abscesses were worse than in others, 
but all suffered grievous pain. Polygol is a blood coagulant. The subjects who received this treatment were first shot with guns. From that as a starting point, the polygol would be administered to see how fast the wound would clot. One subject was a Russian man who was shot in the right shoulder. The bullet emerged near his spleen. He twitched and went into convulsions. He sat on a chair and died 20 minutes later. Polygol was determined to be effective after testing it on the amputated thigh of a 40-year-old man. Phenol experiments involved gas edema. The goal was to test the ability of a body infected with gas gangrene to tolerate a serum containing phenol. The purpose was to develop a means to protect German soldiers from gas gangrene. Phenol is highly corrosive as a poison. It's a liquid solution, carbolic acid, is used as an antiseptic. It has been used to euthanize large numbers of people. It only healed or cured in the sense that it was considered a way to cure the German gene pool of so-called subhuman elements. Included among this group were Jews, Gypsies, Slavs, the ill, the physically disabled, the mentally disabled, epileptics, the mentally ill, blind, deformed, criminals, homosexuals, alcoholics, and other peoples considered to be inferior compared to the Aryan population. The doctors would cut into muscle tissue and implant bacterial cultures on the damaged tissue. The prisoners were inoculated with Staphylococci and Streptococci. Following this, wood shavings were added. The following is quoted from an affidavit submitted by Dr. Waldemar Hoven. In some instances, I supervised the killing of these unworthy inmates by injections of phenol at the request of the inmates. These killings took place in the camp hospital, and I was assisted by several inmates. On one occasion, Dr. Ding came to the hospital to witness such killings with phenol and said that I was not doing it correctly, therefore, he performed some of the injections himself. At that time, three inmates were killed with phenol injections, and they died within a minute. The total number of traitors killed was about 150, of whom 60 were killed by phenol injections, either by myself, or under my supervision in the camp hospital, and the rest were killed by various means, such as beatings, by the inmates. The inmates that assisted Dr. Hoven were prisoners who were incarcerated for non-political reasons. The elevated status they enjoyed angered the other inmates, and it sometimes led to retaliation. Occasionally, it resulted in murder. The so-called Dr. Ding was a witness to the euthanasia procedures that were carried out by administering undiluted raw phenol. He recalls this procedure in his testimony at the Nuremberg trials. One by one, four or five prisoners were led in. The upper part of the body was naked so that their nationality patch, on their clothing, could not be distinguished. The condition of their bodies was bad, and their age was advanced. I do not remember a diagnosis as to why euthanasia was to take place, but probably I did not ask about it either. They sat down quietly on a chair that is, without any sign of excitement, near a light. A male nurse blocked the vein in the arm, 
and Dr. Hoven quickly injected the phenol. They died in an immediate total convulsion during the actual injection without any sign of other pain. The time between the beginning of the injection and death, I estimate, at about one half second. The rest of the dose was injected as a precautionary measure, although part of the injection would have been enough for the fatal result. The dead were carried into an adjoining room by the nurses, I estimate the time of my presence at 10 minutes. Defendants Rogalski and Hoven were convicted for these offenses. The Mangala Experiments Joseph Mangala, also known as the Angel of Death, was an SS officer and physician in Nazi Germany. He used his position at the Auschwitz concentration camp to conduct experiments on those who were interred. These experiments frequently resulted in mutilation and death. He was also a member of the team of doctors who selected which victims were to be executed in the gas chambers. He frequently administered the gas himself. Most of Mangala's career is noted for his research in human anthropology, particularly as it pertained to genetic heredity. When he conducted his experiments on human subjects, he demonstrated a total lack of consideration for the health and safety of the victims, nor was he moved by their physical and or emotional suffering. Mengele was intrigued by the phenomenon of identical twins, as well as people with heterochromia iridium, or different colored eyes. Dwarves and people with physical abnormalities also intrigued him and fell under his knife. The purpose of the twin research was to prove the supremacy of heredity over environment. It was thought that this would strengthen the Nazis' argument of the genetic superiority of the Aryan race. Despite the barbarity of these experiments, Mangala's research subjects received better food and housing than other concentration camp inmates. They were also spared execution temporarily for as long as they were Mangala's guinea pigs. When he visited the children on whom he experimented, he would often have them address him as Uncle Mangala, and he would give them candy. Despite these creature comforts, Mangala was personally responsible for the deaths of numerous victims, who he killed through the means of lethal injection, shootings, beatings, and his experiments. Regarding his disposition, he was remembered by the victims as sadistic, lacking in empathy, and anti-Semitic to a fanatical degree. He believed Jews should be eliminated entirely, feeling they were an inferior and dangerous race. His son Rolf later noted that Mengele demonstrated no remorse for his crimes even years after the Third Reich. One inmate remembers Mangala in the following quote, He was capable of being so kind to the children, to have them become fond of him, to bring them sugar, to think of small details in their daily lives, and to do things we would genuinely admire, and then, next to that, the crematoria smoke, and these children, tomorrow or in a half hour, he is going to send them there. Well, that is where the anomaly lay. Twins were examined by Mangala weekly. He would measure their physical features. He would perform amputations of their limbs with no medical necessity indicated. He would infect one twin with typhus or some other disease and follow up by transfusing the blood into the other twin. 
Many of the victims died during the experiments. Many of those who survived were sometimes killed. Mangala would dissect them for further analysis until they were no longer of use to him. On one occasion, he injected 14 twins in one night by injecting chloroform into their hearts. If one twin perished from a disease, he would kill the other twin to outfit himself with comparative post-mortem reports to aid with his research. Mangla experimented on the eyes of inmates. He would try to change the eye color by injecting chemicals into the eyes of living subjects. He would kill people with heterochromia so that their eyes could be removed and sent to Berlin for research. When he studied dwarves and people with physical abnormalities, he would take their measurements, draw blood, extract healthy teeth, and treat them with unneeded drugs and x-rays. Many of his victims were sent to the gas chambers after two weeks of experiments. Afterwards, their skeletons were sent to Berlin for examination. He would experiment on pregnant women before sending them to the gas chambers. He would perform vivisection, which involves dissecting a living subject. He would perform this procedure without anesthesia. He would extract their hearts and stomachs. Yitzhak Ganon, a Holocaust and Mangala experiment survivor, reported that his kidney was removed without anesthesia. He was forced to resume work in the camp immediately after, without painkillers. Mangala once sewed two Romani twins together, back-to-back, -back, in a crude attempt to create conjoined twins, otherwise known as Siamese twins. The children contracted gangrene and suffered for several days until their deaths. Joseph Mangala fled from Germany at the end of World War II. He sought refuge in South America, where he concealed his identity and moved several times after he was revealed as the notorious Nazi doctor. He died from drowning in Brazil following a stroke on February 7, 1979. Euthanasia Hitler issued his authorization to Dr. Karl Brandt to kill anybody among the ailing who was diagnosed as incurable, whether their condition was chronic or terminal. A special department was established for the purpose of executing children who were mentally and or physically disabled. The parents were not consulted. The operation was classified as top secret. Among the children selected for euthanasia were the half-Jewish and the healthy. All told, approximately 5,000 children were killed. Inmates of the concentration camps who were no longer physically able to work were executed in the gas chambers. Jews who were classified as habitual criminals, shirkers, and those who, in the words of the Nazis, defiled the race, were selected for the orchestrated massacre. German Jews, Polish Jews, Polish nationals, Russians, and other non-German nationals were killed. Adult gypsies were also terminated. People who became mentally ill due to the trauma of becoming wounded by military strikes were euthanized. Those who were deemed useless eaters, or people who were no longer considered to have intrinsic value to the state, or as human beings in general, were sentenced to what the Nazis called a, quote, mercy death, end quote.
by starvation. Among these people were patients in nursing homes, asylums, and hospitals who were elderly or mentally ill. People suffering from arteriosclerosis, tuberculosis, cancer, or any other debilitating and possibly incurable disease met an early demise. To quote Dr. Brandt, It was pointed out that during the war, healthy people had to give up their lives, while these severely ill people continued to live, and would continue to live, unless euthanasia was carried out. Shortages of food and nursing personnel were cited as justification for the mass euthanasia campaign. A minimum of 275,000 people who were categorized as elderly, insane, or incurable, as well as those who were unfriendly to the Nazi regime in some way, were slayed in nursing homes, hospitals, and asylums. The Court of Assises in Berlin on March 25, 1946, found the defendants Hilda Wernicke and Helena Wiesoserick guilty of murder. They were sentenced to death. This is an excerpt from the deposition of defendant Kurt Gerstein on an occasion when recently arrived Jews were escorted from the trains to the gas chambers. Forty-five cars containing 6,700 persons 1,450 of whom were already dead on arrival. Behind the little barbed wire openings were children, yellow, half scared to death, women and men. The train stopped. 200 Ukrainians, forced to do this work, opened the doors and drove all the people out of the coaches with leather whips. Then, through a huge loudspeaker, Instructions were given to them to undress completely and to hand over false teeth and glasses. Some in the barracks, others right in the open air. Shoes were to be tied together with a little piece of string handed to everyone by a small Jewish boy of four years of age. All valuables and money were to be handed in at the window marked valuables, without receipt. Then the women and girls were to go to the hairdresser, who had cut off their hair in one or two strokes, after which it vanished into huge potato bags, quote, to be used for special submarine equipment, doormats, etc., end quote, as the SS Unterschaffuhrer on duty told me. Then the march began, to the right and left, barbed wire. Behind, two dozen Ukrainians with guns, led by a young girl of striking beauty. They approached. With police kept in worth, I stood right in front of the death chambers. Completely naked, they marched by. Men, women, girls, children, babies, even one-legged persons, all of them naked. In one corner, a strong SS man told the poor devils in a strong, deep voice, Nothing whatever will happen to you. All you have to do is breathe deeply. It strengthens the lungs. This inhalation is a necessary measure against contagious diseases. It is a very good disinfectant. Asked what was to become of them, he answered, Well, of course the men will have to work, building streets and houses but the women do not have to. If they wish, they can help in the house or the kitchen. Once more, a little bit of hope for some of these poor people, 
enough to make them march on without resistance to the death chambers. Most of them, though, knew everything. The smell had given them a clear indication of their fate. And then they walked up the little staircase, and behold the picture. Mothers with babies at their breasts, naked, lots of children of all ages, naked too. They hesitate, but they enter the gas chambers, most of them without a word, pushed by the others behind them, chased by the whips of the SS men. A Jewess of about forty years of age with eyes like torches calls down the blood of her children on the heads of their murderers, five lashes in her face, dealt by the whip of police captain Worth himself, drive her into the gas chamber. Many of them say their prayers. Others ask, Who will give us the water for our death? Within the chambers, the SS pressed the people closely together. Captain Worth had ordered, Fill them up full. Naked men stand on the feet of the others. Seven to eight hundred crushed together on twenty-five square meters in forty-five cubic meters. The doors are closed. Meanwhile, the rest of the transport, all naked, waited. Somebody said to me, Naked in winter, enough to kill them. The answer was, Well, that's just what they are here for. And at that moment, I understood why it was called the Heckenholt Foundation. Heckenholt was the man in charge of the diesel engine, the exhaust gases of which were to kill these poor devils. SS Unterscherführer Heckenholt tried to set the diesel engine going, but it would not start. Captain Worth came along. It was obvious that he was afraid because I was a witness of this breakdown. Yes, indeed, I saw everything and waited. Everything was registered by my stopwatch. Fifty minutes. Seventy minutes. The diesel engine did not start. The people waited in the gas chambers. In vain. One could hear them cry. Just as in a synagogue, says S.S. Sturbenfuhrer, Professor Fanestiel, Professor for Public Health at the University of Marburg Lawn, holding his ear close to the wooden door. Captain Worth, furious, dealt the Ukrainian who was helping Heckenholt eleven or twelve lashes in the face with his whip. After two hours and forty-nine minutes, as registered by my stopwatch, the diesel engine started. Up to that moment, the people in the four chambers already filled were still alive. Four times 750 persons in four times 45 cubic meters. Another 25 minutes went by. Many of the people, it is true, were dead by that time. One could see that through the little window as the electric lamp revealed for a moment the inside of the chamber. After 28 minutes, only a few were alive. After 32 minutes, all were dead. From the other side, Jewish workers opened the wooden doors. In return for their terrible job, they had been promised their freedom and a small percentage of the valuables and the money found. The dead were still standing, like stone statues, there having been no room for them to fall or bend over. Though dead, the families could still be recognized, their hands still clasped. It was difficult to separate them in order to clear the chamber for the next load. 
The bodies were thrown out blue, wet with sweat and urine, the legs covered with excrement and menstrual blood. Everywhere among the others were the bodies of babies and children. But there is no time. Two dozen workers were busy checking the mouths, opening them with iron hooks. Gold on the left, no gold on the right. Others checked anus and genitals to look for money, diamonds, fold, etc. Dentists with chisels tore out gold teeth, bridges, or caps. In the center of everything was Captain Worth. He was on familiar ground here. He handed me a large tin full of teeth and said, Estimate for yourself the weight of gold. This is only from yesterday and the day before, and you would not believe what we find here every day. Dollars, diamonds, gold. But look for yourself. Then he led me to a jeweler who was in charge of all these valuables. After that, they took me to one of the managers of the big store, Kaufhaus de Westens in Berlin, and to a little man whom they made play the violin. Both were chiefs of the Jewish worker units. He is a captain of the Royal and Imperial Austrian Army and has the German Iron Cross first class, I was told by Halbstern, Bumfuhrer, Obermeier. The bodies were then thrown into large ditches, about 100 by 20 by 12 meters, located near the gas chambers. After a few days, the bodies would swell up and the whole contents of the ditch would rise two to three meters high because of the gases which developed inside the bodies. After a few days, the swelling would stop and the bodies would collapse. The next day, the ditches were filled again and covered with 10 centimeters of sand. A little later, I heard they constructed grills out of rails and burned the bodies on them with diesel oil and gasoline in order to make them disappear. At Belsec and Treblinka, nobody bothered to take anything approaching an exact count of the persons killed. Actually, not only Jews, but also many Poles and Czechs, who, in the opinion of the Nazis, were of bad stock, were killed. Most of them died anonymously. Commissions of so-called doctors, who were actually nothing but young SS men in white coats, rode in limousines through the towns and villages of Poland and Czechoslovakia to select the old, tubercular, and sick people and have them done away with shortly afterwards in the gas chambers. They were the Poles and Czechs of category number three, who did not deserve to live because they were unable to work. Police Captain Worth asked me not to propose any other kind of gas chamber in Berlin, but to leave everything the way it was. I lied, as I did in each case all the time, and said that the prussic acid had already deteriorated in shipping and had become very dangerous, that I was therefore obliged to bury it. This was done right away. The next day, Captain Worth's car took us to Treblinka, about 75 miles north-northeast of Warsaw. The installations of this death center scarcely differed from those at Belsec, but they were even larger. There were eight gas chambers and whole mountains of clothes and underwear about 35 to 40 meters high. Then a banquet was given in our honor, attended by all the employees of the institution. The Obersturmbahnführer made a speech. 
Your task is a great duty, a duty useful and necessary. To me alone, he talked of this institution in terms of beauty of the task, humane cause, and speaking to all of them, he said, Looking at the bodies of these Jews, one understands the greatness of your good work. It goes without saying that good work is a dubious distinction within the framework of the crimes against humanity that occurred throughout the Holocaust as carried out by the Nazi regime. Adolf Hitler and his minions were human monsters first class. That is important to remember. This is also important to remember. Some feel true crime content is unfair to the relations of the victims, as they may re-experience the trauma that came in the aftermath of the egregious offenses that were perpetrated against their loved ones. Others feel that it is vital that we never forget how those who were most directly impacted suffered. A poll that was conducted a few years ago found that young people knew next to nothing about the Holocaust. A movement was spearheaded to lean on educators to include information about the Holocaust in their curriculum. It is important that this is done. It is also important that we never forget what the offenders have wrought. If we do, it is almost as if they have gotten away with their crimes scot-free, and that is something we, as the human race, must not abide. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.